Welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to write his dissertation, teach a class, and eventually to get a job. There wasn't an episode last week. I mean, I I recorded one, but I didn't post it. I, I was feeling kind of not confident about it. I was confident about everything I said in it, but I, I just felt that in some places it got a bit rambly. And I, I, I was meaning to, to listen through it and maybe cut out the bits where I didn't make sense and reconsider things, but I, I just never got around to it. So I guess there wasn't an episode last week. Maybe we'll release this episode, uh, this missing episode, sometime later, maybe during a hiatus and like a winter break or something. But for now, it's going to remain lost. This week, we're going to be talking about the Anthropocene in the 21st century. Now, something that we talked about in the missing episode last week was that the big storyline of history of the environment in the 21st century is that humans become even more of a geological force. Now, there's two big processes to this. The first is that in the early 20th century, human beings learn how to fix nitrogen from an energy-intensive process called the Haber-Bosch process. This allows them to make artificial fertilizers that just kind of, you know, cracks the lid off of how much food human beings can grow in industrial agriculture. This means that the population of human beings on Earth suddenly seems like it doesn't have a limit. You know, at the beginning of this series, we had maybe 0.2 million people living on Earth in the 15th century. At the end of the 20th century, we have something like 7 billion. This is a huge story. The very biomass of the Earth is shifting from plants and animals and coming into human beings. We can think of the 20th century then as this story of like organic stuff changing from vast prairies and deer and whatever else that lives out there in the wilderness and turning into human beings, turning into you and me. There's a great statistic about this. 80% of the nitrogen in your body, in my body, in the proteins that make up our muscles, in the DNA that like serves as the building blocks of our very being, 80% of that nitrogen comes from a vat. It is created from the Haber-Bosch process. This is new. This is unusual. The second big process of the 20th century is the creation of new forms of highly scientific industrial chemical production after 1945. The combination of these two developments leads to a massive increase in pretty much everything, anything human. Population is an obvious massive increase, especially after 1945. Uh, Changes to the nitrogen cycle are another massive increase. Emissions of carbon dioxide are yet another massive increase. But we also should think about material prosperity. Material prosperity increases on average for human beings over this time period. When you think about it, it is really an amazing achievement. It's hard to know whether it's a good achievement. On the one hand, we have a lot more people. And 
most of those people have a lot more stuff and are probably a lot more happy and probably have a lot longer life expectancy. But each of us has a lot greater ecological footprint. I mean, it's hard. It's hard to make an, a moral accounting of this. But that's kind of what we're going to be talking about today. How to deal with the combination of the Anthropocene and inequality. Now, this episode is going to draw from two big sources. Well, well really, it's drawing on one big uh, 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 strain of debate started by the economist Thomas Piketty back in 2014 when he published this big book called Capital in the 21st Century that just kind of captured the op-ed pages of, of, of the literate public for a couple months. It's a doorstopper. Uh, I remember reading it before I got into grad school when I was working back in market research and I, I would go uh, uh, to work each day on the Metro in Chicago. It was winter. It was one of those slate gray, cold, bitter, snowless Chicago winters that just make you hate yourself. And I have a memory of like settling down in the warm Metro for like the 25 minute train ride to my office and opening up this big gigantic tome on the very top level of the metra and reading it and just thinking man i am cool man i know exactly what's going on couldn't understand the book at all i didn't have the you know the background or the context but sure i felt cool the other big influence on this is uh, a colleague of mine trevor jackson who is now actually a professor at uh george washington university you see people can get jobs uh, and he has written um, a decent amount about inequality and also talked to me about it over beers and uh, uh, is a smart, charming and uh, very clear thinker about this, much clearer than I am. So let's start and, and just lay out the big deal that Thomas Piketty made. Why was he so important? Well, Piketty had two big interventions. The first is that he looked seriously at wealth inequality, that he really took it as a big problem that, that mattered. You know, economists often deal with, you know, aggregate scores, how, how well the average person is doing. And they don't often take a look at the spread of how wealth is distributed. And Piketty thought that that was a big oversight. Now, this is true. Uh, a number of uh, scholars have shown that, you know, inter alia, wealth inequality really does have negative effects on the population. Wealth inequality has been shown to slow economic growth. Um, it's been shown to drive polarization. McCarty, Poole, and Rosenthal, a trio of political scientists, argue that the inequality that is happening um, in the U.S. right now, our massive and increasing wealth inequality is driving our massive and increasing political polarization. A different characterization of this comes from the famous podcaster Mike Duncan, who has done the History of Rome podcast and also more recently is continuing to do the Revolutions podcast. And Mike Duncan, in an op-ed in the Washington Post just this week, argues that we can see parallels in the current American political moment in Republican Rome. Why? 
both are dealing with massive inequality. Well, excuse me, both have political systems that should deal with massive inequality and yet are failing to again and again and again. So for Mike Duncan, the Roman Republic at a certain point reached a massive amount of success. It had conquered the Mediterranean world. It managed to subdue Greece and Carthage. And for a moment, it it really controlled all of the wealth of the trade of the Mediterranean. And this meant that people got rich. But not everybody. Really, not most people. A very small number of elites got rich. And for everyone else, there was massive economic stress in the shadow of this massive success. The rich people bought up farms and worked them with foreign slaves. Literate slaves in the city uh, came from across the empire to work as stewards, writers, and accountants. People, by and large, were worse off. And some political leaders over time, argues Duncan, attempted to reform this. They attempted to make policies that would redistribute land, that would correct the wealth inequalities that were at the heart of the late republic. But they failed again and again and again because politics itself had become incredibly divided. Nobody wanted to support a policy that would help the public if their rival was the one who proposed it. And so each individual attempt to solve each individual tiny little problem was contested. It had a both sidesness to it. It had, you know, arguments and fights in the Senate and speeches, and nobody could agree because agreeing to a plan of action on something that big would mean stepping in line beside someone and the parties could not agree. This gridlock led to collapse. And when people were desperate, they looked not to the senatorial republic, but rather to the charismatic military dictators who would come and replace the republic with the empire. A scary analog, right? So wealth inequality over time really matters for history. And Piketty is an economist. He wants to model this. He wants to understand it. And his big intervention is making a massive database of wealth inequality uh, over the long 20th century, starting in the middle of the 19th century and going up to 2000. You can find this online. I'll put a link in the show notes. It's fantastic. You can play around with it a lot. It's It's a really, really useful resource. And looking at international wealth inequalities over time, Piketty came up with a equation. I mean, I mean, he's an economist. They, they describe things in numbers and formula. So the question is, how much each year do people get from working? And how much each year do people get from the gains on capital investments? Right? This basically means how much do wealth is created from actual labor and how much wealth is created from the rents that people who own capital charge for the use of their capital? 
How much do landlords get versus workers? How much do, you know, uh, the average Joes get versus the people who own stocks? Now, it's important to note here that that, that characterization that I just made is, 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 is not exactly accurate. Because you can work a lot and get paid a lot of money and still not have a lot of capital. And you can not work at all and maybe you have a little bit of money, but get all of your wealth from capital. This is about getting money from doing nothing, from investments, from, from owning things. So how can we characterize how big a share countries usually have of their national income that comes from capital? Piketty argues that this is equal to the rate of return on capital times the savings rate over economic growth. Now, this means that the higher the rate of return on capital, the higher the share of the national income that goes to capital. The higher the savings rate, the higher uh, uh, people put their money into banks and into investments, the higher the share of national income goes to capital. And importantly, the lower the growth rate of the economy, the higher the share of national income that goes into capital. What does this mean? This means that when growth is slow or stagnant, capital gains more than labor, and it gains much more than labor over time. Similarly, when rates of savings are high, and also when the returns on capital investments increase, capital gains over the people who work. Piketty ends up making a historical argument about the progress of inequality over time. For most of human history, economic growth was slow or stagnant. And this meant that for most of human history, the gains were really consolidated into a very few number of hands. When you think of your stereotype of the medieval peasantry hanging out in some picturesque but muddy farmland, you know, working, you know, day in, day out, malnourished with tons of kids and like one scraggly horse, and then there's a beautiful chateau on top of a hill that's dominated by a fat prince or king with jewels and everything, that is due to the slow economic growth which encourages the domination of the few who have capital. Capital is more powerful the slower the economic growth. But something weird happened. In the 20th century, particularly from 1945 to 1970, there was a in wealth inequality. This was because economic growth sped up. This meant that the gains of national income that the people who worked got increased relative to capital over time. But starting in the 70s, growth started to slow and we, we saw a return to you know, 1900s levels of inequality, which is where we're at. 
Now, you'd think that historians would be particularly interested in this big sweeping story that seems to make sense of a lot of the stuff that we observe in our lives from, you know, that medieval peasant to the new Gilded Age that we're living in today. But they have been slow to take up Piketty's charge to study the history of inequality uh, over a long period of time. Um, my colleague Trevor Jackson has noted this in a great article in the Journal of History and Ideas blog that I am going to put in the show notes. Now, maybe it's because historians today don't deal with numbers a lot. We're a pretty enumerate bunch. But I've been thinking about this as I've been teaching the history of the Anthropocene, because it has great bearing on how we understand the history of the Anthropocene. Climate change is a hard topic to make a story about. It's difficult to deal with conceptually, to deal with morally, because it's invisible and it's slow and it seems that there's nobody to blame to do it. Because it's invisible, it's really hard to make a story about any single person doing any single thing to cause the big looming disaster we know is happening. It's slow, and so there's a really big time lag between a given person releasing a ton of carbon dioxide in the air and a given amount of pain a human being feels from the global warming that will go into effect afterwards. You know, the carbon dioxide that I've emitted in my life will survive in the atmosphere far longer than I will survive on this earth. And because of that, it's very difficult to make an account of this story that, that, that has blame in it, that, that has a bad guy. We love bad guys in our stories, even, even our histories, especially our histories. We love to look at a human drama and try to understand the motivations of people, try to sum up the hard moral choices that people individually struggle through, people at war, people dealing with the fate of countries, people, you know, figuring out how the world works. Those are the sort of stories that captures the human imagination. And none of those stories come to bear in climate change. And this is hard when we're trying to tell a story about climate change that will help us imagine a future. Who is to blame? Who should pay the costs for mitigating climate change? Who should feel the benefits of the technologies that allow climate change to happen? Looking at Climate change from the perspective of inequality might help. Because over the past 300 years since we first started to unlock the Pandora's box of fossil fuels, there has been deep inequalities in what happened. There is, of course, a deep inequality about the people who gained from this basket of technologies. Obviously the British. You know, the British started with coal. And because of coal, they were able to get the first gains from the Industrial Revolution. And because of that head start, they were able to capture a great deal of the trade and vitality and politics and people and land in the glorious 19th century. And because of their head start, they were also able to get a jump on the next big energy frontier of petrol, of oil. They were the ones who began drilling for oil in the Middle East. They are still a key 
power in determining who gets oil. But the biggest gainers from the new fossil fuel energy regime in this long period of the Anthropocene were not the British nor the Europeans. They were the Americans. By 1920, per capita, the average American was using three times the energy, three times the fossil fuels than the average European. And that has only grown. Right now, the, an individual uses on average about 6.2 tons of carbon dioxide per year. And the average American is 20 tons. That is three times the world average. So there's a deep inequality about where the gains from fossil fuels are going. Many to Britain, many to Europe as a whole, but the vast majority to the Americans. And as we make a story about the history of climate change, part of it seems to be about humanity you know, gaining some sort of self-knowledge about our, our collective destiny. That, that part of it is about this slow and, and struggling realization that we're all in this together, that we all have the ability as a group, as a species, to change the fate of the world. But this belies that, 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 that hideous fact that over the past 200 years, most of the gains from our, 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 our unsustainable use of fossil fuels have gone to a very, very few people. So far, European countries contributed 20% of the carbon dioxide that has been released in the atmosphere. North America is 27%. Russia and Central Asia, 15%. China, 12%. Africa, 5%. So there is a deep inequality there. There's another inequality in that climate change will affect the world in different ways. Canada and Russia are probably going to be good. They're, they're going to, you know, actually gain strategically and agriculturally from climate change. You know, Russia is going to be able to grow wheat on like the vast tundras that it has. Uh, Canada will, you know, suddenly have like a, a, a lot more arable land and a lot more places for people to settle. The U.S. Uh, and other uh, uh, temperate countries will not actually be that bad off. I mean, in the U.S., we might lose Florida and the Gulf Coast and many coastal cities, but We'll still have a vast interior. There might be places that are, are hit with drought, but there might be places that, 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 that get better environmental conditions. However, it's the global south that will really be hurt. Small, low-lying island nations will be completely wiped away. Drought-prone areas will be even more at risk of harvest failures. Places that are battered by hurricanes and other natural disasters will be even more at risk. We see this today in the debates about the migration crisis. There's a way in which much of the migration that is already happening, that is, that is dominating the headlines about Syrian refugees and Guatemalan refugees and Nicaraguan refugees, is in part a climate story. Not totally. I don't think anybody would, would say that this is the first you know, global warming refugee crisis. But it will not be the last. As these changes to where people can live and where people can grow crops get more and more and more intense, there will only be a greater 
political problem of figuring out where the people will go. So there's a geographic inequality to climate change. Now, there's also a policy inequality to climate change. Whatever policy basket we choose to help people mitigate climate change, to help humanity solve this collective crisis, it's going to affect people in different ways. I mean, part of what people talk about is is, is maybe really, really strict controls on, on, on fossil fuel usage that hamper economic growth might actually harm future generations by, you know, denying them the benefits of all the future inventions and infrastructure gains that we'll get 40 years in the future if we just keep on doing business as usual. Figuring out, like, a quantitative way to measure this is why William Nordhaus, uh, the economist, just won the Nobel prize for economics, for trying to wrestle with this problem. But there's also another problem. If we make energy more expensive, if we just make a blanket carbon tax, then it really hits poor people the most. Poor people who already spend a greater proportion of their incomes on necessities will, if we tax, say, gasoline, to, to reflect the negative externalities and gasoline consumption, they will be able to do less. So there's an inequality there. Understanding that these inequalities were really kind of mucking up the possible debates about climate change, Piketty actually turned to trying to quantify inequalities in carbon emissions. And what he found is not particularly surprising, but it's still telling. It turns out that it's not a geographic inequality that matters most for climate change. It is a wealth inequality. Today, the top 10% of individual emitters contribute 45% of global emissions. The top 10% of people, as far as carbon emissions go, are responsible for nearly half of all global emissions. This is a massive individual inequality. The bottom 50% of people contribute only 13% of carbon emissions. And within countries, inequality matters more to explaining global dispersion of carbon emissions. So take our average American. Our average American is greedily responsible for about 20 tons of carbon dioxide being released into the atmosphere every year. The average one percenter American is responsible for 320 tons. This is a story of material inequality. It's a story of a particular way of life, a greedy way of life, a way of life of private jets and massive consumption and parties and food and travel that is only accessible to the very few around the world. This is true not just in America, but in China and Russia throughout the world. The majority of carbon dioxide emissions comes from a minority of people. Just as today, wealth is concentrated only in a very few hands, so too today is responsibility for carbon dioxide emissions. And this helps us tell a big story about climate change, about where we want to go in the future. 
First, it helps us figure out a connection between this growing inequality that we see in front of us, our growing material wealth, and the growing responsibility to change the environment. When we think of the story about inequality that Thomas Piketty tells from the perspective of this podcast, from the perspective of the Anthropocene, things change a little. The growing inequality that we see is not merely the result of uh, slow economic growth. It's the result of high rates of return on capital that happen as the world shifts from a labor-biased growth uh, uh, schedule to a capital-biased growth schedule. And this happens because after the Industrial Revolution, machines are much easier to run than people because of cheap energy. Cheap energy is one of the roots of modern inequality. And modern inequality is also one of the roots of modern environmental degradation. It is the outsized wealth the outsized material wealth of the tiniest sliver of the top of the population that is contributing the most per capita to climate change. And this material wealth, this greed, this need spread across the world. It's not merely a question of British people being particularly at fault for being you know, in the country where the Industrial Revolution first happened. It's not a question of American people being particularly at fault because they, right now, use the most per capita on a countrywide basis. Because most of the people don't have power. Most of the people are not, you know, are just living normal lives for, 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 for their society. Instead, we should be looking to blame the people who benefit the most from the current economic system. This forces us to tell the story of the Anthropocene not just from the perspective of the geographic inequalities that we might be used to, but as a story of class inequalities. It doesn't mean that we're off the hook as you know normal middle-class people in the developed world. Americans still use more carbon than most people on Earth. I am still recording this podcast on a computer that is, you know, based on ripping rare earth metals out of the ground and is being powered probably from a coal fire plant. And I will be eating my cheap food grown with cheap nitrogen fertilizer tonight, and I will be fat and happy. I am still not blameless. You are still not blameless. But it pushes us to connect the political project of combating inequality with the political project of combating climate change. They are both intrinsically linked. Whatever the present solution is, it probably has to deal with both. Thanks very much for listening to this episode of Making of a Historian. If you like the podcast, please rate and review us on iTunes, share us on social media, tweet at me, Send me an email at bmackey at berkeley.edu or just, you know, send a prayer or whatever you do to communicate psychically with the podcasts that you like and recommend. Uh, thanks, as always, go to Jonathan Lear for the music and Duncan Barton for the art. And thank you to all the people who have reached out to uh, tell me that they like the show. It really does mean a lot. 
Thank you for listening. Um, There will be no episode next week, not because I'm lazy, but because we have a week off school and I will be focusing on writing my dissertation. Um, In two weeks, we will be back and we will be discussing the growth of cities. Thank you for listening.